This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome back to the MDT. I'm Dr Joe Preston and I'm a consultant geriatrician at St George's Hospital in London. And I'm Dr Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician in Surrey and Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust just south of London. And this week we are going to be talking about acute stroke. Yes, we're going to be talking specifically about the recognition of acute stroke and the early management. And as with all these episodes, we have a whole MDT faculty that's worked with us to develop this. Mm -hmm. And in this episode, we have Adam Buckler, who is a pharmacist on our faculty, and Mark Garside of the AME podcast, Yes, which you should go and check out. That's A-E-M-E. Yeah, Academy of Elderly Medical Education. Mm -hmm. And they also run some mini gems if you go on YouTube and search for mini gem, G-E-M. Yes. And then also we have Yusuf Absuleman who's a consultant stroke physician uh, where I work. Okay, so we have some feedback. Uh, I thought this week we'd focus the feedback on a couple of blogs that have been talking about us. Yeah. Uh, There is the Physiotherapy at Home blog. Who knew? And (laughs) they have uh, talked about the podcast and how useful it is and have directed a couple of people to it. So thank you very much for that. Go check it out. Yeah. Also, there is the Learning with Technology blog. Yeah, which is really nice. And it's quite a nice resource for lots of different oh, it was really good. online yeah. learning resources. Um, yes, and they liked our website. So if you haven't had a look at our website and you've just been listening through iTunes, then go check it out. It's www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. Brilliant. And then there was two things from the East Midlands. Mm. There was a blog from the East Midlands Advanced Clinical Practitioners in Geriatrics. Again, talking about the podcast, highlighting it to people. And then a really, really nice resource called the East Midlands Emergency Medicine Education Media, which, because it's three lots of M, has the hashtag EM3. Oh, I've seen that. I didn't know what the three Ms were. So it's really good. good. And it looked like a really nice course, actually, talking about some of the basics of managing older people in the emergency department. And they've used some of the infographics as uh, one of the resources at the end of the course. Which is really cool. Which is really cool. So please crack on and, and use all of our bits. I think they had a course earlier this year, didn't they? Yeah, I think they did. Yes. Yeah. And I think we've had some guesses at the MD teaser. Yes, we have. Um, so one of the guesses was ABO blood groups. It's not that. It's not that. Uh, another is conductive education, which I have to admit, I don't know what that is, no. Ian. No, I don't know. One was the Royal College of... Physicians. And the Faculty of Medicine. The Faculty of Medicine, yep. Contact lenses and yep. plastic surgery. No, nope, still not it. And Bobath concept. I don't know if I've pronounced that right. Yeah, I think that's right. So that was a wrong answer, yeah. given that I don't know. But <laughs> And those of you that know the Bo- what the Bobath concept is, that links really nicely into what we're talking about today, which is acute stroke. So as with each episode, we go to our own MDTs and ask what this topic means to them and what it brings up for them. So here's what they said. I'm a physiotherapist on a stroke board in an acute hospital. I think it means uh, early intervention, so trying to see a patient as soon as possible, establishing their baseline and then setting some goals, patient-centred goals that family can get involved with as well and really it's that early intervention of getting them to a point where they might go on to further rehab or back home but I think straight away it's it's more about 
establishing what they were like before, what they want to be like, and then working with them to achieve those. That way we can sort of guide our treatment towards whether they were very active or if there's a lot of the time they set goals specifically around a certain activity that they used to do a lot of like gardening and that way we can make it more patient-centered and then they're more involved because they have an understanding of what they want to achieve and what and that then the whole MDT can come together and we're working towards the same goal so the patient can set that sort of functional goal and then as a therapy team we can break that down into okay so we need to look at strengthening or we need to look at balance or something like that but then for the patient that they still have that goal in mind so it's not just all medical jargon for them. Hello I'm one of the stroke nurses in an acute hospital setting so we get a bleep obviously um, usually with an ETA of when the patient's going to come in so we gather up all our paperwork and we head down to A&E. When we see the patient um, we do obviously a quick examination we do an NIHSS score which is just um, checking the neurological examination and then we usually bring a patient off to CT um, to try and hit the targets of getting them in within the hour. Um, we have a four and a half hour time stop to um, be able to give people the clot busting medication, the thrombolysis. Um, so when the patient comes in through the doors, it is quite fast paced. When we get down to a usually the a nurses are there taking bloods and um, doing blood pressures and everything for us. And then a medical registrar will join us as well. The aim is to get to our stroke ward. Um, obviously depending on beds, sometimes they have to go to another ward in the interim. The first 24 hours is obviously very um, important. We'll be monitoring blood pressures and urological observations every 15 minutes, half an hour, and then hourly. Um, they'll have a repeat scan within 24 hours of having the thrombolysis. Um, so they'll be monitored very closely at the beginning. And then obviously our therapist will join in once the 24-hour period is over. I'm one of the acute medicine registrars. And first thing I think about is the onset, the timing of the symptoms, what the symptoms are. Is this a stroke or could it be something else? Then I think about whether or not this patient would be for thrombolysis and I think about arranging a CT head to confirm whether this is a stroke and also where the nearest stroke team is. Am I somewhere where I've got ASU on site or somewhere where I have to think about transferring this patient to another unit for investigation and treatment? And then about the support of care. Are they at risk of swallowing problems? Do I need to make them null by mouth? Do I need to treat them for an aspiration pneumonia? Anything like that? I think one of the things that we really wanted to cover in this episode was thinking about what a stroke actually is yeah, and, and how it may manifest and what sort of stuff we would do right at the beginning of the patient's management. Yeah, so it sounds really simple, doesn't it, knowing what a stroke is, but I think knowing what a stroke is and what it isn't specifically is quite key to understanding um, who needs to go down a stroke pathway and who doesn't. And I think there's been a lot of push for increased stroke recognition in the last sort of five, ten years, which has been really, really important in improving patient care. But it's also meant that lots of people get labelled a stroke for any neurology. Yeah. So that's why we decided to do this episode. So what is a stroke, Jay? A stroke is an episode of acute neurological dysfunction presumed to be caused by ischemia or hemorrhage. Yeah. So there's two main types, aren't there? Mm. There's where there is a blockage of blood vessels that we call ischemia, and that's going to be the main focus of what we talk about. And then the second is where there's been a bleeding or a leaking from around the blood vessels, Yeah. Um, which is slightly less common. Both of those mean that at the end of that blood vessel involved, 
the bit of brain tissue doesn't get the blood that it needs, either because yeah. it's leaked out, so it's not coming down the blood vessels, or the blood vessel's blocked. Which is why they're all labelled as a stroke. Yeah. There are some rarer types, like spinal strokes and central venous thromboses and things like that, mm. but we're not going to touch on those. We're just going to cover the, the common stuff. Yeah. And so we are going to focus on ischemic stroke here. Yeah. Um, one thing worth mentioning is that traditionally the definition of a stroke was a neurological deficit that lasts longer than 24 hours. So anything less than 24 hours is technically classified as a TIA, but I think it's really important to understand that actually it's a spectrum of, of disease here. So there's kind of TIA on the one end of the spectrum, which kind of shorten, quickly resolving, and stroke on the more lasting end. So we're mainly going to focus on the management of ischemic stroke, mm -hmm. but the basic principles of the management of acute stroke, whatever the type really, are fairly similar. And in each case, time is brain and you lose around 2 million neurons per minute. From yeah, that's a crazy number, crazy, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. I think that's a good start to have, especially when people um, don't necessarily understand the urgency for acute stroke. To kind of have that to have at the tip of your tongue is really yep. useful. So acute ischemic stroke is an acute blockage or occlusion of one of the arteries that's supplying the brain. So that can be from an embolus, so formed somewhere else, like in the heart in the case of atrial fibrillation, or a thrombus directly within the blood vessels. But either way, it's something that suddenly blocks that blood vessel so that blood can't pass along it anymore. And because of that, the onset has to be sudden as well. Yeah, the vessel like suddenly one becomes blocked. to the next second. Yeah. Boom. So if you think of it like a heart attack, which the mechanism is pretty similar, that pain of a heart attack doesn't build slowly over days. It doesn't build slowly over hours. You may have episodes of it, but it will start fairly suddenly. And I guess the same thing there is like with the, the TIAs, mm. people sometimes call mini-strokes. They're very similar like... Uh, a bit like angina it's where you're getting a warning sign that something is not right in the circulation yeah. and actually it's an opportunity to get in and do something about it yeah absolutely they're usually smaller clots that are shooting off into the brain and temporarily blocking the blood vessel technically the thinking is that they don't cause any permanent damage i think realistically we mean by that as according to our definition of less than 24 hours it's there's no clinical deficit lasting yeah um, but actually mri imaging shows actually some of these tias are actually showing yeah. i mean if you've got damage. an area of ischemia so the blood vessel has been blocked for 24 hours that bit of brain is going to be dead mm. so you it's will infarcted. have infarcted yeah exactly so i think these days we tend to think about four hours don't we mm. but i think in reality most tias are, are much shorter than that sort of up to an hour and then anyone with a tia so that's a, a sudden onset episode of neurological dysfunctions for example a weakness of the face or the arm or mm -hmm. difficulty in getting words out that gets better they need investigation and, the, and they need the, it quickly and they need it quickly and the key thing is something called the abcd2 score mm -hmm. and you can search for that on the internet and a score of four confers a four percent risk of an acute stroke in the next week mm. and a score of four upwards really are the high risk people yeah and they need urgent assessment and treatment. Now, in each of your hospitals, that will be done slightly differently. Some hospitals will admit people to do that. Other people will put them in a clinic appointment first thing the next morning. Mm. Places do that slightly differently, but either way, it's a, an urgent assessment, and you yeah. should do that however you do it. Yeah, have a discussion with your local stroke team yep. or find out what your protocol is. And the other things that the ABCD2 score doesn't quite pick out people who are high risk, so just to be aware of are people who are in atrial fibrillation. And also people who have crescendo TIAs. So a few recurring episodes confer a much higher risk than their ABCD2 score would suggest. So even if they score low on that, but they've had recurrent symptoms, they should be treated yeah. as high risk. 
What's that noise, Joe? It's on Nerd Alert, Mom. This is a new thing for this series. <laughs> so whenever we're going to get a little bit geeky about something, you will likely hear that sound. So what we're going to get geeky about at this point is about the blood supply to the brain, because that's really important in understanding yeah. acute stroke. So there are two main divisions in the blood supply to the brain. So what are they? So we've got the front and the back. Mm-hmm. Anterior and posterior. Yeah. Although that is a gross oversimplification. Yeah. Simplification. But bear with us. Yeah. So the posterior circulation supplies the back of the brain, so the cerebellum and the brain stem, and that by and large comes from the vertebral arteries, which... Which run up the back of the neck. Yeah. Yeah. And the anterior circulation, so that the front, supplies mm-hmm. pretty much the rest of the brain. So that's most of the frontal, the parietal, the temporal areas. And the two blood vessels supplying this area are the anterior mm-hmm. and, really importantly, the middle cerebral arteries. Yeah. And the blood vessel that feeds these is the carotids, and then it feeds into something called the circle of Willis, mm-hmm. which also the vertebrals feed into at the back, don't yeah. they? So it, you've got this sort of circle of blood vessels, a bit like a roundabout, with divisions going off it. Yeah. And that's really important because the way that these two types of stroke present are fairly different because they're supplying very different parts of the brain. Yeah. So that wasn't that nerdy, was it? Not that no. nerdy, no. So the focal deficit that the patients get depends on the area mm. of the brain affected, which in turn depends on the blood vessel that's affected. Yes. So because stroke is a blockage of a particular blood vessel, it should cause a focal neurological deficit. Global brain function shouldn't be affected unless it's a really large stroke, in which case there's a bit of swelling and kind of involving the rest of the brain that way. Actually, from the pure sense of the stroke, it shouldn't cause drowsiness and it shouldn't cause a loss of consciousness. The only time that I guess that could happen is if you had lots of edema yeah, so uh, pushing really, on really other structures, stroke. a really large middle cerebral yeah. artery stroke. Yeah. But people who black out, come back again. It's not stroke. No. And then each bit of the brain controls a bit of the body. Mm-hmm. And that can be either what we call like a higher cognitive function mm-hmm. or a sensory function as a feeling or a motor function, a moving. The right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. Except for, except the, cerebellum. for the cerebellum. Yeah. And any area of the brain can be affected by stroke, but the main ones that present tend to be, as you said, either motor, sensory, or if it's the back, it can be coordination or speech. And speech is a bit of a tricky one, so we're going to talk through that because that can be affected by lots of different functions of the brain. And I guess there's higher cognitive function as well. So memory and processing Mm. and vision, I guess, kind of are in there too. So speech can be disturbed by lots of different mechanisms. So it can be slurred, which is called dysarthria. And you can remember that because it's kind of difficult to articulate. And that's what they have problems with. And that can be because of muscle or motor weakness of the mouth. Or you can have dysphasia, which is an interruption in the generation of speech or understanding of language. Yeah, so it's a language problem, isn't it? Rather yeah. than a muscle problem, I guess. Yeah. And I get dys- dysphasia can be receptive, so they can't understand what you're saying to them or expressive so they can't get the words out yeah and the key way to distinguish that is say are your thoughts clear but you can't get the words out rather than if someone's confused their thoughts are confused and so speech then comes out i often get them to name something Mm. and then sort of say do you know what it's called but you can't tell me they they tend to sort of be able to answer that yeah dysphasia is 
something that would be considered a higher cognitive function. So it's yeah. not a direct area of the brain that's affected, it's a kind of putting together of lots of different inputs. Sometimes people mix it up with confusion, don't they? Yeah. I've seen a few people that, that have been referred they as confused. They themselves get confused. Yeah, and actually you talk to them and they're not confused at all, they're just very dysphagic. They can't, they get can't the communicate that, yeah. So that sort of division in the circulation is the basis of the Bamford classification, mm -hmm. which splits strokes into lacuna infarcts, which are small ones in the middle. Lax. Lax. Uh, anterior circulation infarcts, which could be partial. Pax. Or total. Tax. Or posterior circulation. Pox. Yeah. And, and you can go and look up the Bamford classification, but mm -hmm. it's quite useful. And the more simplistic version of that for kind of screening is the fast screening that you've probably seen on the side of ambulances in adverts, which stands for face, arm, speech and time. Time is the really, really important bit because of the advent of thrombolysis. Yes. And thrombolysis is a treatment that is licensed currently for use up to four and a half hours after the onset of symptoms. And the earlier you give it, the safer and more effective it is. Yeah. And that's why the time part is really, really important. And going back to remembering that two million neurons per minute, you really need to give this treatment. Four and a half hours is possible. a lot of neurons. That Someone can do the math. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the way that thrombolysis works is a drug that you give through a drip and it breaks down the clot by inactivating part of the clotting pathway. So it means that after you've given the drug, your risk of bleeding is higher. But it's also the same drug we've used for a long time for treating heart attacks and blood clots in the lungs or PEs. Yeah. Um, so it's a drug we're kind of used to using, yeah. but maybe in the last, what, 10, 12 years, using it differently, treating the brain. Yeah, absolutely. And that risk of bleeding after you've given it because you've stopped all your clotting factors from working, the later that it's given, the larger the area of brain that's already been affected, so the damage has already been done. So you have a larger area of weaker brain that you can bleed into. And that's the main concern, is the later you give it, actually the risk of it outweighs the benefits. Yeah. And also there's this thing called the penumbra. So that's the bit of brain that's not dead, but not got a great mm. blood supply. So it might be recoverable, yeah. isn't it? So it's ischemic, but it's not infarcted yet. That's it. And yep. that's the area of brain that you want to save. You may never be able to get back that bit that's infarcted already, but there's a bit that is if it gets the right perfusion, so it gets its oxygen or its nutrients back. Yeah. That your so outcome the aim will be better. Thrombolysis is to try and salvage the penumbra. It is. That's a cool word, isn't it? Penumbra. I like that. It is. So if you think someone's having a stroke, you call an ambulance, mm -hmm. you call 999, and you get them to hospital. Yes. If they're in the hospital already, then you call the stroke team, and you usually do that through your medical emergency pathways. It's usually the 2222 system. So then when you see someone, that's having an acute stroke, mm -hmm. what the team are going to think about is whether or not they can give this clot-busting yeah. medicine that's called thrombolysis. And we said that the, the four and a half hours is, is what it's licensed for. And so the time of onset is there really important. Mm, we kind of have to be as sure as possible. So if you're in doubt, you take the last time the person was seen completely normally, yeah. not when they were found or presented. Yeah. So the so-called wake-up strokes make it difficult unless you've got fancy CT scanner that can do perfusion scans and things like that. Yes, there's... there's most places don't. So the time of onset is therefore really important. So you've got to be as sure as possible. Mm. So if in doubt, you take the last time that they the person was seen well. completely normal. And that may be when they went to bed last night. Yeah, and they would call that a wake-up stroke, don't we? We do. Yeah. And there are studies looking at different modalities of imaging to help with trying to identify the time of onset of stroke to open up thrombolysis to those patients. But... As of yet, none have been um, 
conclusive and universally adopted. So the thrombolysis criteria um, are really focused around three things. One is the correct diagnosis of a stroke, which the stroke team will, will come along and do. It's about ruling out mimics, which we'll talk through. And it's about ensuring safety for the treatment of thrombolysis. And those second two things are things that anyone can do. So while you're waiting for the stroke team to come or while they're doing their assessment, there are other things that you can do to be doing that part of it. And those are some of the things we're going to talk through now. Yeah. So if you think about what the brain needs to work is it needs oxygen. So you can check the oxygen levels and you can do something about that by giving somebody oxygen. Mm -hmm. It needs blood sugar or sugar within the blood that is normal so you can check a blood sugar Mm -hmm. if it's low you can do something about it if it's high it's unlikely to be the cause but you could do something about it but it can be yeah and once you correct those then you have a chance to see whether there is still a neurological deficit that's there that is unrelated to that to that blood sugar it needs blood and you need a good blood pressure to achieve that so if the blood pressure is low you could have global sort of hypoperfusion of the brain causing a dysfunction So you need to find out why that blood pressure is low and do something about it to pick that up. Yeah, and quite often these are the ones that aren't strokes. It's because their blood pressure is too low and they've got another reason. Yeah, or they've had a stroke in the past and their blood pressure's gone low and it's just worse now. Yeah, Yeah. so the brain can't function normally. Um, Importantly, high blood pressure is a contraindication to thrombolysis and that's because of that risk of bleeding in the brain that we were talking about earlier. So a high blood pressure, and by that the definition is over... 180 over 110 is a contraindication to thrombolysis. What you need is three normal readings below those values to be able to proceed with thrombolysis. Now, there are drugs that you can give to bring down the blood pressure if you think that they would be suitable for thrombolysis if the blood pressure was normal. And that's something the stroke physician will decide about. So having those three readings five minutes apart is really important. So if you're the first person there, you're the the nurse in A&E, putting that blood pressure on five-minute cycles means that actually by the time the rest of the assessment's done, they're ready to go. So we're looking at oxygen, blood sugar, blood pressure. Yeah, simple. And then there's a thing called the NIHSS, Mm -hmm. which is the National Institute of Health Stroke Scale, which is kind of a, a way of turning the neurological examination that we do into an objective score. Mm. I think it's really quite nice. I quite like it. It's easy to do. It looks complicated, but it isn't. Yeah, and there's a training tool that you can find online to do it. Yeah, or if you go and look at your um, trusts, if you're in a hospital, uh, thrombolysis pathway, it will be in there as part of that. And the scoring really tells you if the score is too high, the risks are likely to outweigh the benefits of thrombolysis. So either the drug won't work because the stroke is too large or they increase their risk of bleeding. If the score is too low, then actually the risks again outweigh the benefits because the the deficit is quite small. Yeah. It's a bit like porridge, isn't it, and Goldilocks? Yeah. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Absolutely. Speaking of which, on a slight diversion, okay. Goldilocks principles of geriatric medicine, get the chair right, get the food right, and get the bed right. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so the one caveat to that NAHSS score is in posterior strokes where the symptoms are really quite disabling and even with a severe posterior stroke, so the cerebellum and the brainstem, uh, you won't score very high on the NIHSS. So some f- stroke physicians will actually, if it's a posterior infarct, adjust that lower end of the NHSS. But that's for an expert to decide. But it's just to explain, if you see that happening, that's why. And the thrombolysis criteria in your own hospitals, or 
in your local hospital is likely to be fairly rigid mm. um, and it will be designed to rule out the stroke mimics that we've sort of touched on already, mm. but just other things of migraine, uh, subdural hemorrhages, things like that. And we'll Space put an article. lesions. We will put a link to an article about stroke mimics in the show notes mm. for this episode. So that's uh, one of the main reasons to do a CT, actually, is to rule out other things in the brain that are causing this. Bleeding. And also to rule out bleeding, yeah. exactly. But what's really, really important, and as geriatricians, this is fundamental to us, is that you can have all the fancy scores that you like, but you have to go back to the patient all the time. So your stroke physician will come and use all of that information about the blood pressure, the time of onset, and all of those things, and the NIHS score. But the most critically important thing is, does it sound like they actually had a stroke? Because you can score on the NIHSS for other deficits from other things, but they will then do a, a rapid clinical history and examination and say, is this likely to be because of brain blockage? And the IST3 study shows that there is pretty good evidence that it works and is helpful in patients over the age of 80. Yeah, so a few years back they weren't thrombolising people under the age of 80, but this that paper changed that. And then the final thing on the uh, thrombolysis criteria is, do they have any exclusions, any reasons that they shouldn't have thrombolysis? Um, and that tends to be linked to the risks of bleeding. So they, have, they had a recent operation... Have they had anything at a non-compressible site that might bleed? So have they had a lumbar puncture recently or a central line in recently? Have they had any cancers that if you bled from those, you wouldn't be able to stop the bleeding? I guess the new kid on the block, something that's really kind of really new, mm. is clot retrieval. And I think yeah. we should probably just say that it exists. It's been shown to improve functional outcomes in several trials in selected cases, even in patients who could not have clot-busting drugs. Mm. And it consists of removing the clot from the blocked vessel uh, in the brain by getting access through the groin, a bit like when they do an angiogram for the heart, as long as it's done within six hours. Yeah, so you've got a slightly longer window. A slightly longer window, and it's done by one of the neuroradiologists, one of the x-ray doctors. So this is reasonably new at the moment, so it's only really being done at big centres, or it's difficult to access if you're not in a big centre. But over the next few years, we'll see more and more people having that in the same way that people are having PCI for heart attacks. So in the final bit now, uh, I think we've talked a little bit about how to diagnose a stroke. Mm -hmm. And then I think we should think about, well, what happens in the next 24 hours? What's the first stuff that we do? And this stuff's really, really important because it is what alters outcomes. The thrombolysis is a treatment that's available for a subset of people, but actually the early acute management, even non-thrombolysis, really has an evidence base behind it for improving outcomes in the long term. And that is the treatment for the majority of patients. So the first bit is take them to a stroke unit. People do better if they're looked after by people that are used to looking after whatever that condition Mm. is. So if you've broken a hip, you want to go to a hip fracture unit. If you've had a stroke, you want to go to a stroke unit. Yeah. And there's really good evidence for this backed up by NICE guidance. Mm. And it should be within about four Four hours. Four hours. And that allows a focus team to start early rehabilitation with them as well. Yeah. And focusing on things like uh, making sure they have a safe swallow to minimise the risk of aspiration early. And if they can't swallow, think about how you're going to give any medications. So if they've had an ischemic stroke, how can they have um, aspirin, which is a blood thinner? And if they don't have a safe swallow, thinking about an early nasogastric tube for medications and fluid and nutrition. And then maintaining hydration. Mm-hmm. Some patients may well need IV fluids if yeah. their swallowing's not good, and they, you know, and you can't get the energy mm-hmm. in straight away or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then early mobilisation. Yeah. Under physio guidance, need to think a little bit about shoulder subluxation. Yeah. And but really, we should be looking at getting people out of bed, hoisted into a supportive seating, 
the same day or the next day after the stroke. Yeah, absolutely. Bed rest is not not good for you. Mm. So blood pressure control is really important. So in the acute phase, you don't want the blood pressure to be too high. You'd only really act if it was persistently very high because that might increase the risk of bleeding into the brain. But generally, we allow the blood pressure to run a little bit higher in those first two weeks after a stroke. Um, And then we start targeting quite a tight blood pressure for secondary prevention. And then you you don't need to treat that many people really to uh, reduce the risk of strokes Mm. for secondary prevention. So that's after you've had a stroke. You only need to treat around 11 people for five years to reduce the chances of a second stroke from, Mm -hmm. from hypertension. If somebody has had an infarct, then also you'd start aspirin or some other antiplatelet agent. And we tend to start those pretty much immediately. Yeah, they're not having thrombolysis, then they'll have them straight away. If not, after... It's about a day, isn't it? It's a day later once they've had their repeat CT to check for any signs of bleeding. And number needed to treat for aspirin is about 50 to reduce the risk of all cardiovascular problems Mm. and about 200 for strokes. So it's quite good, Yeah. but you still have to treat a fair number of people. people. Yeah. Yeah. Cholesterol control is another thing that we target for kind of secondary prevention. And the number needed to treat there varies depending on the type of statin that you're using, but anywhere between about 50 and 120 people. And then on the stroke unit, what they'll then do is they'll start thinking about the cause. So it's fine to say this person's had a stroke Mm. and we're managing the stroke. But the real question is, well, why have they had the stroke? And actually, that's the main focus of TIA clinics. I think that's a really important thing to to realise. That's why you're getting them there quicker, is to find out what the cause was so you can address it. Yeah. And then, so why has this person had the stroke? Mm-hmm. And why have they had it now? Why has it happened today? Not not next week, not tomorrow. What what was it? Why not yesterday? What, what specific about today mm-hmm. that's provoked this? So you're going to be doing ECGs, looking for irregular heartbeats. So mm-hmm. AF is a risk factor for strokes because you get clot forming in and around the heart. You're going to be scanning the blood vessels in the neck to look for any um, stenosis. Yes, the carotids. You may go on and do other tests and investigations after that. Yeah, and the reason for scanning the carotids is that you can offer them an operation to open up the carotids if they're blocked. Yeah. And the earlier you do that after the stroke, the better they do. Yeah, well, the guidance is within a week, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So we've covered some of the acute diagnosis and management of Mm. stroke. We've talked a little bit about ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke, and we've mostly talked about ischemic stroke. Yeah. The management for hemorrhagic stroke is very similar, but without any of the antiplatelets or the clot-busting drugs. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think we've impressed on you the importance of what to do if you think someone's having a stroke. They need to get to hospital. Yes, get yes. them to a specialist. But there are things you can do whilst the specialists are coming. In the meantime, yeah, to help them make their decision. So let us know what you think. Um, you can let us know on Twitter at MDT underscore podcast yeah or on facebook forward slash mdt podcast (laughs) and if you want to be um, a bit more quiet about it and less public you can email us through the website www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk the mdt podcast and it's that time of the week again joe it's that time it's the md teaser so this is the catchily titled MDT item guessing game where we're going to read a series of increasingly more simple clues about an item that a member of our MDT might use. Yes. And I think this might be my turn to go first. And we're 1-0 up to Joe in our efforts to keep track of the scores <laughs> this series. Okay, Joe. 
Right. All right, I'm ready. Are you ready? I was okay. looking at my clues. They're not going to help me. They're not going to help you, no. Okay. So, uh, this is very much a, a me sort of list oh, of clues, God, this here one. here we go. <laughs> so, this first clue for this item was invented in 1816 in France by René Lorec uh, out of a sense of awkwardness. Don't know. That's okay. <laughs> and in 2015, there was an open source plans for a 3D printed version of this. Um, oh, is this something to do with telecare? No, no. no? Okay. Um, in 1851. Oh God. <laughs> the two-ended version was first used, which is now in common use. A stethoscope. No. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I have to tell you that the fourth clue was that it was the first non-lethal medical instrument invented, apparently. Oh, yeah, that is a good clue. And it means chest scope. Oh, really? Stetho is Greek for chest, mm. which is why René invented it. Because he didn't want to lean in. He didn't want to lean in and put listen to uh, ladies' chests. That was So how you got, I got that the on the... Yeah, uh, third, on. third item. <laughs> right, game is on. Game is on. I have to say, the stethoscope was one of my options. It's going to have to move to a different um, clue, but luckily I have some spare. All right, this item can be scanned for a test. Is it a name badge? Oh, I'll give you the other clue. It's a name band. It's a name band. Name band. Yeah. Yes. yes, that's so annoying. The other clues are going to be: it's unique to that person. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, but not usually, it's used on a leg. It's made on the ward. I thought it was a good clue. It's a good clue. It's usually white or red. Or green. Uh, Some places have green. Green, really? People that um, get confused. Ah, so it's all level there one all. So, well, now it's your clue. So we each week we're going to give you a new clue, mm-hmm. um, and we'd like you to tweet in with your answers. The second clue is, part of it has the same name as a Marvel Comics character. Cool. So you can send your suggestions via the hashtag on Twitter, which is hashtag MDTeaser, mm-hmm. or you can tweet us directly at MDT underscore podcast. You can have a guess via Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or you can send us a little quiet message via the website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk. So today we've been talking about acute stroke in the next episode we are going to be talking about bone health and the one following that is about diagnosing dementia the mdt will reconvene in two weeks dr wilkinson has previously received funding from astellas and ucb pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities the mdt podcast is a hearing aid podcast's big things media production additional music by kevin mcleod this podcast has been made possible from a technology enhanced learning grant from health education england spreading education throughout kent surrey and sussex for more information visit the hearing aid podcasts.org.uk so how do you listen to the mdt let us know tweet us a photo of you listening to the mdt using the hashtag how do you listen to yours and we'll give a prize for the best photo that we see over yes. the next month so get tweeting